the funny thing is, is I always record it on my side and then never do anything with it. That's okay. It's a backup. It is. It's a good backup. It's good to have it back. Because you know, the one time we don't do a backup, we're going to have a great conversation. Oh, yeah. And have nothing to show for it. <laughs> well, it's it's reminiscent of our very, very first podcast. Yes. Where we made it three quarters of the way through. And then I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> and then you did have it backed up, though. Record. And then I did. I had a backup. You did have a backup. That was yeah, one of the best out. things. It worked out great. Yeah. Oh, my heart sunk so bad because you know you make it through that conversation that went really well yeah and we lost all, all, of, it. all of it which was too bad like it's going to fail in two years one to two years you guys are going to fail with this I, I look at I look at well this actually rolls into the topic of today pretty well but I look at a lot of these things as being people problems and you have to build a good team you have to be able to set up a, up the right culture if you're going to succeed doing almost anything. And, yeah. you know, you can have a, you know, terrible kind of structure organizationally, but if you have good people with the right, you know, skill sets and direction, you can make things work. But if you have a bad culture, a bad set of directions and people that aren't, as skilled as you might hope for, it can fail very, very quickly. I agree. I actually looked up the word this morning because when I write a lot of my articles, I like to look up the meaning of some of the words. I did it for that newsletter that I told you about my personal newsletter. I looked it up. I'm like, okay, teams. Like it was a good question you asked. What makes up a good team? And I said, team. Team's an old English word that literally just means group of people working together for some purpose, you know, acting to bring something to fruition, right? It's back from, what is it? It was associated to a joint action in 1520s. The word itself for teamwork came around in 1909. Not the word itself, that was 1828. But in 1909, we decided that, okay, teamwork actually means people in it a team, not just a, a group of horses doing some work. So we're still horses doing work, but now we're a team of people, horses right. doing work, right? We've been upgraded. We've been upgraded. People. <laughs> and, not, and not just a group of things that have a brain. Exactly. That, that might be able to accomplish a task. Yeah. But I thought the question was interesting because if you search it, the list that they give us, seems so generic, right? The, the, the listing of going, Oh, you know, you just need to be nice to each other, or you need to have agile practices when they search the word for, you know, tell me what a technical team, a good technical team. And I don't, I don't disagree with some of it, but I don't think those are the right areas to focus. Like you said, culture is really one of those primary areas where you actually have to focus. I I personally believe that culture has well I think most people would agree with this. Culture has the biggest impact on any business in every facet. It's why you hear especially in like the you know the startup kind of tech world, I mean even up into the metas and googles of the world, you know, we we work really hard on our culture, which I think is a very funny thing because you you can't work you can't you can't build a culture based on what you want it to be 
Culture is defined by how you act, by the way that you operate, and all of the things that make up the whole. And I find it very comical when people actually talk about how they're trying to build a culture. Like I get, I get what they're actually like. I get the root of it because, okay, well, you know, I create a culture then people below me are going to react to that culture. So yes, you can personally try to help make that better, but as an organization, you know, driving a good culture is just hand wavy bullshit. Most of the time buzzwords to a point. I think there are, I think there are things you can do as a leader to help drive a culture creating itself. But you can't do like you're saying, you can't write down that I want this kind of culture. So, you know, there it is. You know, you can't just have a couple affirmations and cross your fingers and, and hope for the best. You know, it's I demand you to be innovative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you will be in the morning. Yes. Like, no, That's it's right. it's not going to happen there. To that point, though, there are things that are important, whether it's workshops and, and I, such a buzzword in itself, but ways that you have the team stop and understand where they are and where they want to be, whether it's organizational, whether it's a small team. But I'm thinking like one of the things we did was the ways of working. And I felt like that quickly changed the culture of the team itself, right? Or the way, because you, you stopped and you asked each other, what was expected of each other? How are we going to work together? How are we going to communicate? How do we expect to do our documentation? When are people going to show up for work to work together? When are we remote? When are we on site? Like everything was there. There was a sense of clarity, but it built a sense of trust. And then off of that sense of trust, you started holding each other accountable because you had a set of rules that you built for yourselves. You didn't have to call it rules, but it really is rules. Expectation. Yeah. Better word. Yeah. You know, if, if, if there are no expectations for everyone around the organization, then there's no accountability. And you also can't predict what might happen. And, you know, one of the things that I love about us working together is we I think we both know our own skill sets and what you're good at and what I'm kind of good at. And I know what I can expect of you and I can predict what you're going to do so that we can react off of it. Right. And, you know, at the core level, if you think about a, you know, especially like a broader engineering team, if you don't have any kind of predictability of what might happen, you, you end up with lots of compounding problems that come off of that. Well, if I can't trust that you can build me an API that I can consume and that you're going to make it relatively trustworthy and all of these other things, then I, I don't trust you. And I'm not going to trust you with my production reliability because I can't trust you. So what am I going to do? I'm probably going to build something on my own. Right. And so now you have this negative, really negative problem of duplication all because of a lack of trust and a lack of accountability and a lack of reliability. And if, you know, good leadership in that scenario would say, no, you, you don't build this thing on your own. Why, why would you act? Why would you do that? It's I'm going to hold this other person accountable for not being reliable and being predictable in the other things. Yeah. I, uh, Trust is, trust is important. Perception is the other one as understanding based on uh, understanding that perception is how we judge 
the things around us. It's not always data and facts. Most of the time, it's a perception of what's there, whether right or wrong. And then that builds trust. I, I think trust is the most important one. And if you look at the growth life cycle of a team, it's always lost and then regained. It has to take a journey. You know, it's a, it's a growth journey in itself. Well, you know, I know, I think I mentioned this super, super briefly in one of our previous conversations, but it, I think it really applies here. And it's a concept that the folks over at 37 signals, like the, the creators of Basecamp and a couple other tools, like, Hey, email, like really, really great company. I, I think so at least, but they, they have a concept. They talk about the trust battery and Every time you work with somebody, you're either improving that level of trust or you're decreasing that level of trust. And yeah. as, a, as a new person joins the company, maybe they start out at 50%. And then you, you, know, you, you interact with them and, and they, it's a positive result. So maybe they go up to 60%. You know, maybe they drop the ball on something or, or something didn't work out the way. Maybe it drops down to 40 But I, I love that analogy because we all do it regardless. It just puts an interesting kind of spin on it is how much do I actually trust you on any given, whether it's you or your organization or whatever. And, you know, being able to understand that and react to it and, or at least acknowledge that it's a thing. Right. And Cause it is a I thing. All the, I, I say it all the time. Like sunlight's the greatest disinfectant. And the rats will scurry away all of those things when you start to shine light on things. And, you know, the other thing that I, I fully believe in is the only problem you won't solve. They can't solve is the one you won't talk about. Yes. And there's so many of these things that are out there that, you know, nobody wants to talk about it because they're, you know, they're, they're awkward conversations or whatever. And so you just ignore them. And that's how you end up with this weird culture of lack of trust, lack of anything, you, you, you know, it's the beginning of building silos, all of the other things that everyone hates about like the enterprise culture all start from these very critical aspects that come from leadership and just filter their way down to the lowest levels of any, any company. Yeah. I think a lot of it can come down. I think you can also fix it from bottom up. So I just want to put that out there because I think there's, there's again, unique ways to create the culture you want and it doesn't have to come from leadership down. There are ways. So one of the things I've mentioned, I think even in other discussions was Tuckman's law of teams. It's something that I learned a long time ago and I worked on and it's, it's a nice map to understand exactly kind of what we're talking about. And no matter what books you read or things you look at, they, they might not even realize it, but they reference back to this format. The, the model itself is basically that teams go through forming, storming, norming, and performing. Later on, another PhD student added adjoining, but I'm not worried about when the team breaks up at the moment. Let's say we start at the beginning. Think about it. The honeymoon effect of any team you've ever seen, right? Teams work together. They love each other. Everything works perfect. There's a, a certain level of trust that's automatically given just because you came together. Things happen. It works great. Storming is where most teams fall apart. And it's a lot of what we're talking about. We're going to talk about here, right? 
you lose a sense of trust. You start being unsure. People don't follow through in things they say they're going to do, or they say something that's off-putting. And then it starts to create some separation and mistrust. Then teams start to uh, create smaller silos and subgroups. And, you know, you have cliques and clans and whatever words you want to give it. But the team starts to have problems. This is where it is important for the team lead or the leaders in the organization to pay attention because helping someone get through this moves them to a high performing team because the teams need to talk through, like you said, they need to talk through the problems. They need to figure out how to bring this stuff forward and get rid of misunderstandings, get rid of the issues they're having. That allows them to start then growing as a team because they they bring back their their correct point uh, points of or uh, uh, things we need to do like communication and transparency and all those points. If you don't bring that back though, the team will literally destroy itself. So, so how do you, when you, I totally agree. I think, I think you see teams moving through that. You also see the same thing happen in like personal relationships. Yeah. Which people see that very often. You'll talk about like the honeymoon phase where, you know, you'll have two people in a relationship and like everything is just sunshine and lollipops, you know, and, and you can kind of just, you know, kind of not laugh at it, but just be like, yeah, like, you, oh yeah, nothing's going to, you know, get in between those two right now. And as time goes by, you know, like they're, they talk about like the seven year cliff for people, you know, the, yeah, the seven year like itch or and, cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're all pretty familiar at that with when you see it in those types of relationships, but it, we're, it's less obvious in teams, even though to your point, the exact same thing is really happening. And it's like, Oh yeah, I trust you. And I believe you. And we don't have any scar tissue that, you know, is going to come up. And so, yeah, everything just seems to work out great. Like, and once those things start to come, you know, and it can even be little things. Like, man, you've taken like four days to review my PR. Like, what the hell, man? Right. You took four days and then you want to give me a whole mountain of feedback. And I've already started this other crap. And that, come on, man. And it, it just, and then those things just start to build up and grind and it can, it can be an issue. Right. Well, then you go home and you complain about it and you talk to your friends and you're angry. And then this is a terrible team or a person that this person must not like me. We don't get along. I don't know what this is. Then you bring that energy back into the team and everything starts to kind of fall apart because you haven't sat down to actually have the conversation to fix it. Yeah. I, uh, I, many teams that I've, I've managed for this problem, um, and, and other things that would happen, but to get out of this phase, often I just needed to, to basically mitigate a one-on-one conversation between two people and put them in a room and ask questions to get them both to come to a clarity that they misunderstood each other. And they would get to the point where they could shake hands and leave the room going, I'm sorry. Like I didn't, I didn't understand now I understand. And you could see the difference because then the next day they were kind of good and they would start growing on a, a positive path again. But unless they got in a room and actually talked to each other, the problem wouldn't fix itself. Like it was just not going to fix itself. They had to get in a room and talk. Well, and one of the things that I see that happens quite often, and this is a bit of a bold way to state it, but 
people, you almost forget that other people are humans in some ways. And like they have maybe family issues, interpersonal issues, maybe at work, they're getting drug into four other projects or five other projects. And you don't know any of it because you don't see any of that. Right. And maybe they were working 80 hours a week or, you know, they've, who knows what the right thing is. And, you know, you come to them and now you want to kind of complain to them that, you know, they haven't reviewed your PR yet and they get a little snippy with you. There's might be a good reason for that, but maybe not. And this actually goes to one of the other questions that I would ask you is how do you, how do you think that the broader culture and leadership affects how teams go through those phases and how well a team actually works? Yeah. And, and that's an interesting one too, because the type of format of a team Right. We all know the Bezos pizza team thing, but there's actually a larger structure to that that I think is important from a leadership standpoint, because if I'm all command and control, I can greatly reduce the effectiveness of my teams just because I expect them to do what I tell them. And I set up roles and like that I've seen break. So there's there's different ways to create a, a more agile and flexible environment. And we can talk about those pieces. I think that can happen. The other one, I think, and, and I know you asked the second question for this and maybe we'll touch on it, but it's the roles that are in the team and the responsibility of those roles, I think can also break a team from a top down standpoint. So if you tell me I have to have a project manager and I have to, and they're in charge, but they actually have no understanding of how to lead a team and they don't understand how to lead anything. They're just, you know, doing the role wrong. And there's other roles that get put on teams sometimes like that. Maybe it's the managers, maybe it's a director, who knows. But when there's a lot of management and not a lot of time to put hands on keyboard, things fail. Like we've seen that as well. I can't spend all day in meetings. I can't spend all day writing documentation for you. I got a job to do like that kills a culture. It kills a team. Yeah, I I agree. And I also, when, when leadership doesn't respect a team, it will completely, almost completely destroy it. And what I, what I mean by doesn't respect a team is, oh, you know, they'll come down and say, we're going to work agile and we're going to work in two week sprints and we're going to play in these two week sprints. And, you know, I am going to sit here and I'm going to bitch and complain at you when you don't get all of your stories done. And, you know, the date that I promised without asking you at all about what's reasonable, you didn't hit this date. You know, you'll have that kind of leader. Yeah. When everything is dictated and there's, you're not allowed to think, I don't want you to think, I just want you to do. Well, but there's the other side of that, which is also problematic which is that's the same person that's going to come and drag you away for some of those other meetings of, Hey, I got a, I got a phone call from this other leader. That's asking me about this that I know nothing about. So I need your help to come help me essentially like pseudo design this thing to spend two or three hours in meetings 
to go, you know, talk about this thing. That's not a priority. It's not a whatever. And I'm pulling you away. And so now you're, you know, four days, you haven't reviewed the PR from the other person because generally they're going to grab the lead or one yep. of the higher end people on the team. And so now they've broken the, the, the way that team actually works. And so you slowed that whole thing down. You was, you know, in the kind of the storming, forming, norming, you essentially broke that process and they're having to move back to storming because yes. now that key person of the team is essentially gone. Correct. And so you're having to course correct all of the time throughout your process. Yeah, and it would be forming, but it's, it's so good. You're in the same right form, right? You got to yeah. go back to the beginning every time something like that changes. That's right. And then you get to the end of it. And now they can't figure out why you weren't able to actually deliver. Yep. Yeah. It's, and, and I've seen that with even groups, not so much just people, right? You see that with, um, cause we're in consulting, you see that with a consulting sales team that keeps pulling all the SMEs for conversations. Those SMEs are getting pulled off of billable roles off of teams, teams that might need them all day. And now they're freaking out and they're stressed because they're like, well, now I have to juggle all of this and I'm okay to help, but I know there's going to be an impact. And now they're trying to mitigate that impact. And now if three people ask for their, their help or five people ask for their help, they're overloaded. They're just stressed. And now you're hurting both the team's ability to work and the ability for the company to grow right from the sales organization side. Well, I, I totally agree. And you're actually hurting the person that you're pulling off. Yes. Who might get because so frustrated at some point that they want to leave the company just because they feel um, overburdened and probably underappreciated at some point. Well, because they're most likely being judged on how well the project is that they're working on. And if you're constantly pulling them off to do other things, it, that, that project is going to suffer whether you like it or not. Right. And then they'll feel the pressure of and seeing that, hey, I don't have the time or the energy to do this, but there's some senior leader or something pulling me off to do this. And so now there's this, this pull in both directions. They're being looked negatively upon by whatever project they're on because they're not able to actually do the work that they're needing to do, but it's because of these other things. And that's, that's exactly how you get a person to leave. Yeah. But... That's a cultural problem. That is not a team problem. That is a very, when we talk about, you know, you set culture by the way, an organization sets culture by the way that you actually operate. And in this scenario, you are setting culture, whether you like it or not, you're telling your employees that you're basically you're here to do whatever it is that I, I want you to do. And you have to go do all of the things that you're expected to do. Yeah. the Which is a terrible culture. Yes. A hundred percent. There's a feeling that that's command and conquer or command and control from a, even from the military or the past or large corporations and things like that. But a lot of those actually work more autonomous as well. And it's in that, you know, autonomy that, allows for the flexibility and the growth and the trust to build in the teams and organizations to scale and be able to even compete nowadays. There's a, a book that I was reading. I grabbed the title. It was what a team of teams, right? And 
And what I like about it is talking about building teams that are adaptable and resilient to the environment by creating more um, fluidity in the way the team is ability to work. And, and what's nice about it is it's truly building more of a format that teams are responsible both horizontally and vertically inside of the organization. There's not this top down control in the same way. And I think if you mix that with some other formats like team topologies and things like that, where you have specific teams specific for specific goals and you start to think about a lot of these different formats and then the size of a team, you know, you and I here do really well at, you know, going back and forth off each other on topics. We don't write a script for this. This is literally us just brain dumping, taking some notes we did ahead of time and our experience. And, and we think we're doing okay. You know, we could always do better, but we think we're doing okay. Um, if there were 10 of us, we know that that communication pathway would be much more difficult and we would have to change the format. Now, if we're following a, a more of a autonomous team format, we can do what we need to do to be successful. We would all figure that out and we'd build it. If leadership, as an example, was telling us we had to have each one of us a certain role and we had to follow a certain model and we had to have these meetings and we had to have this documentation, we had to have all these things in place, we would be unsuccessful because we'd spend more time trying to get all that right instead of actually the work we needed to do. Right. So the, yeah. I think a lot of the format, but also the control from top, like you were saying, I guess I was going longer with that than was make sense listening to it now. But my point is, is I think the format needs to be flexible and the teams need to be autonomous. I, I, I agree. The, for the most part, you know, there is, you can, you have to start to define the word autonomy a little bit because mm -hmm. ultimate autonomy. I hope that's not your house scary. with the fire trucks, right? Is that yours or mine? I think that's mine. Yeah, it's not mine. It's mine. I think Santa's going around today. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so if it ends up on the audio on here and I can't get rid of it for everybody, it's, you know, Santa's day. I, I, I can't hear it. Um, but you, you have to, you have to start to define autonomy a little bit because there is just 100% pure autonomy. Go do whatever the hell it is that you want. Well, that's anarchy. That doesn't work. Right. That, like that doesn't work at all. And, but even there is, you know, I, I, I struggle with this a little bit because there's not a, there's not a right answer to autonomy. Um, and like, I'll bring up like the Spotify model a little bit where Spotify had a, a very autonomous way of working. So like the Spotify squad framework, yeah, but it's still structured. Uh, it's also basically failed from the beginning. <laughs> and yeah. because it, and here's the problem on paper, it's, it's really just a matrix organization similar to what you would see in a lot of other places. But what you end up with is, or actually, let me, let me talk about this a little bit before I start talking about the problems. So the spot, the Spotify model basically says you're going to break people apart into squads and tribes. And a squad is basically a product ecosystem that has, um, it, it just, 
it has a bunch of units inside of it that are all kind of driving towards a product mission. And then you have tribes, which are squad groups, and you basically are grouping people together. And so figure out how to do that. Right. You, you also have chapters and you have guilds. And guilds are a community of people with a common interest, kind of outside of the squad model. And then chapters are kind of areas of expertise within tribes. So say like, um, you know, hey, here's all the React devs or whatever could be a... Yeah, it could uh, be all your front-end developers that are coming together to work on what they're learning, future skills, things like that. They're sharing their learnings or knowledge, their failures, whatever. Exactly. And so, like, when I think of squads, it is, are really like tribes. It's really kind of domains, essentially. Um, they don't use those words, but when you think of, like, domain-driven design and those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, this is, like, this model looks kind of good on paper, but there's a lot of problems that actually come from this. And a lot of it has to do with autonomy. And when you have squads that have basically ultimate levels of autonomy to do whatever they want, you end up with very hard ways of collaborating across the organization where no one has any, no one has any ability to force anybody to do anything. And so if I am in a squad and I need another squad to do something, I can't make them do that. Right. And so if it's something that I need, I kind of have to build it on my own. And so what you end up with is weird kinds of duplication. You end up with these kind of, it's not, it's not like a power battle. It's like, I need you to do this. It's like begging, borrowing and stealing almost where it, it, it can really slow down the, it speeds up the momentum of a given set of squads and tribes, but it's slow. It can slow down the momentum of an organization. Yeah. It can almost create silos and silos that don't want to work together because they have uh, competing priorities. That's right. And, and so, you know, yes, you can have like in a domain model, you, it's all about your, your, the contracts of interoperability, essentially. I'm going to provide this thing and here's a contract, you know, of, to be able to do that. Well, you end up with these weird arguments of how you actually move things forward. And it's, it's pretty interesting to see it. And I've actually worked inside of Spotify and I've seen this kind of play out in kind of real time. It's, it's something that I think they're trying to kind of move away from in some ways. They're building more of a, of a structure to help solve some of this, but it's, it's hard. And, you know, to kind of go back to the autonomy thing, you know, I know I've brought up like bounded autonomy in the past when it comes to like tech radars and those kinds of things. It's, this is a little bit different, but you have to, I guess to put it super blunt, you have to have somebody that can be there that can say, all right, children, sit down, shut the hell up. We are going to do this because it's the, it's for the better of the company. And this is the way that we're going to go. And, you know, to me, there that you, you need two things. You need autonomy, but you also need accountability for that autonomy. 
And the the leader that's over that that can say, sit down and shut up, is the person that's driving culture, setting culture. It's setting the levels of autonomy for the given teams to do what they want. And it's also holding people accountable. And that, that to me is a structure that gives people like the, the kind of the boots on the ground folks. It gives them the understanding that, yes, I can, I can go do whatever I want from an autonomous team perspective, but I do have to live in this kind of bounded autonomy that says, well, yeah, I can't go do anything. I can't, you know, go tell this other person, no, I can't do it. No, I'm never going to do anything for you. Right. And that to me is the middle ground that says, yes, this all works. And we've both lived in an organization, a very, very flat organization that had no levels of, of accountability because there was nobody to hold anybody accountable. And Honestly, it's kind of obnoxious. Yes. The funny thing is, it also doesn't need to be, and I agree with you, um, lack of leadership is a failure before it starts. You have to have leaders, but you also have to have um, agile leaders. One of the other things that... um, I think it's important to think of it as, is like coaching leaders, which is a thing, right? Is it's coaching to help people grow and things like that. But you also need to somebody, you need someone who's willing to take the hard stance and say, okay, I understood everything. Everyone said, I understand all the information you've given me. I understand where we need to go. This is a decision, whether it works or not, whether we fail or not, this is where we're going. Let's try it. And somebody needs to be willing to do that. And I've, as you said, we've both seen on many teams that not being there. There are many projects that I've gone on where I ended up needing to do that because the teams were in, like I had said, the storming phase of a team. They were having the problems they were having because literally nobody was stepping up to make decisions so the team could move forward. So they were driving themselves crazy and they didn't realize this. So somebody from the outside had to come in and go, okay, you know, I see where the problem is. Let me, let me help. And the Spotify model, I I think is an interesting one that you bring up. I I believe it's where the book for team topologies kind of came from or the idea that the author might've had was, okay, how do I take this a step further? Because this isn't really completely working, but I like the concept of teams. There was another article I read from somebody who was trying to also fix the model. And I don't know if it works or not. I haven't tested any of it. But they looked at it of saying, okay, how do I have a a governance team or a platform team or, you know, a, a, a partnership team? Like, how do I put teams together that have purposes of what they're doing? And then together, I'm creating an ecosystem where these teams help each other. One of my concepts that I, I've I've talked about a lot is thinking about these things as mini startups. So they have the idea of the autonomy to work towards a goal and a solution, but also a focus of the value they're providing. Because as we know, teams have to be able to feel like they provide value. All of us want to know what we're providing value. So you can put the teams in a format that allows each one to feel like it's providing value and helping the other teams. So the measurements from a leadership standpoint are the team is providing value to the other teams, which hopefully will get uh, move away from some of the problems with silos, right? Because their, their measurements are now external measurements, not internal team only measurements. You know, it's not your, it's not your 360 feedback that you're focused on and your, your, um, 
bonus or your, you know, your raise that you're only focused on. You're actually thinking about the organization again and the goal and the focus for the organization. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of different comments through there, you know, when, you know, when you you, you talked about no one wanting to step up as kind of a leader inside of a given team, you know, that, that to me, when you think of the challenges that are there, you know, there's a concept. Um, I call it death by committee. Yeah. Um, where, you know, you're everyone in that group is trying to make everyone else happy inside of that group. And so no one ends up being happy and no decisions ever get made. Right. And it goes downhill from there. And that, that is the worst part of a fully autonomous team. And it goes back to the point that I was trying to make before of you need someone in charge. Like you, you don't want a dictator because a dictator would be bad if, if, you know, a good leader hires and builds a team around them that makes them better, that, hey, you're, I hired you because you're smart. You tell me what to do. But you need someone in the end to be able to say, this is the direction we're going to go and we're going to kind of move. And I see that problem, especially in the consulting world, I see that problem happen all the time because you have to have somebody in charge and you know in the end it's kind of their ass if things go wrong and it's you know they've built the team to to be successful as well yeah um the culture of you know it's your ass kind of thing of the failure and peace i think is also important because that creates an environment where people feel comfortable or uncomfortable to make certain decisions so i think there's a, a discussion for us in there the leader themselves needs to provide a certain level of trust and comfort for the team. A lot of it comes from that. It's not so much that they have all the right answers or anything else, or that they're going to be the person that has to be fired if they made a wrong decision. The fact is more of just keeping things moving forward. And sometimes to the point we're saying is somebody needs to make a decision right or wrong to move things forward. And people have comfort and trust in the fact that sometimes they didn't have to make the decision because they were uncomfortable to make it. So they need somebody who's comfortable enough to, to do that. Right. And there are personally personality types in the world that are more comfortable doing that than others. And a good, a good leader in a good culture, it's always, we succeeded as a team or I, as the leader failed when things go wrong. And if you have a culture that's okay with that, then that, I think you're good because that, that leader is willing to take the arrows for you. But, but that's a different conversation in leadership and leadership style. And I agree with you, Absolutely. but that's a different thing than the team itself. The team. 100%. But yeah. that, that, that now the, the point that I was trying to make poorly was that enables the team that frees up the team underneath them to do the best that they can do because they know that they are protected from a good leader and that they can go and they, you know, they're going to do their best mistakes can happen and they're going to be kind of protected in air quotes from, from some of that. hundred percent. And I agree with you on that is part of a job of a leader is to protect their team one way or another. You're, you're protecting your team. It's, it's like being a, a business parent. Like, you know, this is my family. 
right? Because at the end of the day, if you have a good culture and you have a high performing team, they do see themselves as a family. There are many teams that I've been on that were amazing teams of people and they are friends till today, 20 years, you know, maybe 30 years, 50 years later, they might still be friends. You know, it's why you see people who go through military or college or things like that, that bond with certain groups of people that they end up being friends for life. It's that culture has created a a bond that you, you can't just get anywhere. It's, it has to be built and, and come from, you know, whatever event they went through. Yeah. And there, there's folks that, you know, I kind of went through some pretty rough, you know, issues, you know, from a work perspective years ago. And I still hear from them, Yep. you know, it, it's, I don't talk to them all the time, but you know, just still around the holidays, especially to get, you know, notes from somebody like, Hey man, like, you know, hope everything's really well. And like, you don't talk all the time, but you still have that connection of like, yeah, we, 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 we dug through the trenches and it was, it was no fun. Yep. You still have that kind of bond. And it, like, that's a, you can build that amongst a team. That's something that I've always tried to do is, you know, build that camaraderie to be able to solve problems and, and be able to kind of come out the other side looking and feeling pretty good about it. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, to that fact, I have a group of people that I've worked with a long, long time ago, and we actually get together for dinner quarterly just to, to regroup and, and, you know, talk about family and life and everything else. And sometimes reminisce about all the crazy stuff from the past that led us to the point we're at now, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I know we're not going to talk about it today because it would be a huge right turn, but at some point we should talk more about team topologies and, and how, you know, building out a good structure there can have a huge impact on, on just teams overall and how well, how well you operate as a, as kind of an organization. Yeah. And, and I agree. And I think that's more when we start talking about like the organizational formats and some of that, you know, how are you mapping the capabilities? How are you mapping to uh, ownership of things inside of your business or technical space? Like I, there's a lot of conversation I think in there that alone is an hour and a half, two hour discussion, right? When we think of teams itself, just stepping back a little bit, what do you think is really at a high level, I guess, reducing, we've said some of them, like I think of, like we said, structure and clarity, we mentioned the impact of work. We mentioned a bit, I think the meaning of work we've touched on a little. Um, That's actually one that, that I, I have had a ton of success on, like, you know, I spent a lot of time, like, I was an entrepreneur for a good time. And then I've been, I've ridden the line between product and engineering for the last forever, it seems. And when I think of what really had a, a very positive out, out, out impact, especially on the product side, is really getting people to understand not only what are you trying to do, but why mm-hmm. and the goals and what are you thinking and, and, and all of those things. And it, you know, I, I still follow quite a bit of product management, especially I, I read through it on 
Reddit and other things. And I'll see people ask the question of like, how important is writing in when it comes to, you know, these kinds of things. Um, I'm, so Amazon that has like the six pager, I believe so. Yeah. Where everything that's everything that you're doing, you're essentially you start with writing a press release for it when you're done. And you should have about six pages to describe what it is that you're actually trying to do. And while that's a fine model, which I, I basically kind of agree with, what you're really trying to do is get well, there's a knowledge problem. I guess let me start with that. There's a knowledge problem. I know exactly what I'm trying to do. And I know what I'm trying to, the direction that I'm trying to go. But you don't have all of that knowledge. And a lot of people speak. And they don't really understand that you don't have that knowledge. Right. And then they get frustrated when you don't understand. Yep. The- a great example of this is like, is documentation when you read documentation from somebody else, half of it never makes any sense because you don't have that knowledge. And so if you, if, if you take that into account and whenever you want to do something, write about it. And whether it's a page or two pages or like a page is probably not enough, but you know, two, three, four, five pages, six pages, whatever. And give people, this is, this is the problem statement all of these different items about what it can actually, the the problem you're trying to do today and why is a humongous benefit to everybody involved. And because you're going to get a ton of questions, it's going to start all kinds of conversations and you're truly going to get people up to speed. And when they understand what you're actually trying to do, it is going to be way easier to interact because they know what you're trying to do. Why all those pieces and you can now start to execute and move, move into creating value. And I'll jump off my soapbox. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's valid. It's, it's not really, it is a soapbox. It's a big one, right? But now at the same time, um, in all seriousness, it, I had a really good um, recommendation from a, um, a colleague of mine a long time ago was, I was writing some stuff and I said, how do you do the books you're writing? You're writing these huge technical books. You know, how are you getting in there after years of doing this? How are you going back and writing the book? And he said, Oh, beginner's mind. And I thought that was a great pattern. And he said, you have to remember, you have to try to remember the first day when you didn't know anything and then write it like you're back at the beginning. So when you talk about writing those pages, the idea is not just brain dumping, it's try to put yourself in the person's shoes of who doesn't know it. They don't know the vocabulary. They don't know the concepts. They don't know anything. And then try to explain it at a level that you would have seen yourself in. You would have expected, you know, I would have had to learn the vocabulary. I would have learned, learned the patterns. I would have had to test and break a lot of things until I figured out how it worked. Then explain all of that. So it was changing to that format. It's the, um, you know, talk to me like I'm five. Yeah. Explain it to a five-year-old or something, right? Like, yeah. And, you know, or there's the, the concept of, you know, there's the concept of like the elevator pitch, but it's more like if you can't describe this thing to someone in an elevator, you didn't do good enough. Try again. Yeah. The other one is, um, I think it's Feynman's Feynman's technique. 
which is uh, you should be able to explain anything on one piece of paper. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, it doesn't matter how complicated it is. There, there was a very funny video that I, I watched the other day where people were giving a one line explanation of a book and it was hilarious. And I'll have to find some of them and maybe put them in an article, but it was really, really funny. Yeah. <clears throat> but you're right in that most people try to explain things uh, to others with only their point of view, which again can create frustration because if you're a leader doing it or you're a team lead, since we'll stay at the team format, you're a team lead, project manager, somebody else, whatever, even a senior developer is trying to explain a concept or a design idea or a reason why we should use a certain, uh, you know, application or um, methodology, piece of code, whatever, you know, if you can't explain it for everybody else to take the journey along with you, you're going to create frustrations and you're going to keep the team in a, a storming mode. They're basically going to be frustrated and angry and then distrust. And then they think you're not working as a team member, even though you're trying to help the team. It's the perception. That's where I say perception and trust are so tightly coupled. The perception of what's happening causes the distrust that runs the pulls the team apart compared to being able to better explain and help people come along on the journey which then has a better perception, which thus builds better trust and then gets a team to start having norming ways of work, normalized ways of working and understanding with each other. So you just start to trust each other, like you said, to the point you get to a high performing team, high performing teams. And you had mentioned it in early in our discussion, high performing teams are teams that can one of two things you see, and one is they know what the other person's skill sets are, even if they can't tell you specifically, they just know if X comes up, Y's got it because it just, that's the way we work. And like, I'm not worried about that. The other thing is, is they no longer have defined roles, truly high performing teams. Everybody jumps in to do everything. It might not be your perfect skill set. You're learning and the other person's an expert at it, but you know enough but you jump in and help wherever you can help. There is no more thought of that's not my job. I don't do that. That's not for me. Well, one of the interesting metrics that I like to pull up when I am, um, you know, talking to individual teams or whatever, go and look to see who's actually reviewing PRs on a team. Go pull the numbers. And if it's a, if it's a six person team, eight person team, God, I've seen 12 people teams, like all kinds of dumb shit, but <laughs> Who, who's actually reviewing PRs and that number to me will almost always indicate how well that team's actually performing. Cause if you see one or two people that are doing all of the reviews for a six or eight person team, that's actually a problem. Yeah. Like everyone should be doing reviews and, you know, being able to look to see who's actually doing what is, is always a very interesting way of looking at things. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, to go back to a previous comment, because I, I think this actually makes, I, I think this is, this is pretty critical, at least in my mind, back to the writing about what you can do. Yes. As a, as a, as a, as like a, a engineering team, you, you know, you need to be able to understand what you're doing, but if your leaders, leaders, architects or anybody can't actually describe what it is that you're they're doing that has a severe impact on you. And, you know, if I'm a, if I'm an EA or, a, you know, 
um, some kind of an architect. And I'm doing a poor job of actually describing what I'm trying to do. Then it's going to become almost impossible for that team to actually follow. Right. And, you know, maybe you don't need to write six pages about it, but you should have ADRs. You should have diagrams. You should have all of this information to be able to enable teams to be very efficient underneath you. Enough of a map. Trying to work, Enough clarity. Yeah, trying to work in an architecture that doesn't make any sense and it becomes really hard, then you're going to struggle. And a great example of that, I was working at a company, this was, gosh, I almost 10 years ago now, but that doesn't matter. Well, actually it kind of does. But we had decided we were, we were re-architecting a, an application and the, uh, the architect decided that we were going to use the Netflix stack, which, you know, event-based, very complicated um, to solve one of the challenges that we were going to have. But it, there wasn't a lot of really good documentation on it. There wasn't a good direction of what we were trying to do and where we were trying to go. There wasn't a lot of buy-in from the broader leadership level because they didn't really understand what was happening and what what ended up happening the short version is we ended up building a bunch of stuff and very you know it was cloud cloud centric at the time and this you know going back to 2015 time frame cloud was a thing but it wasn't cloud first everything and we got to the kind of the end of moving things into production and one of the other leaders was like, no, this all needs to be in our data warehouse using Hadoop and other things. And a lot of that could have been, we could have come up with that a lot, a lot, lot sooner. Right, right. If we would have had a lot better set of documentation and alignment across the organization and what we were trying to do. That team that built it, it's not their problem. Like they, they were doing what they thought was best. But if the, if the leadership in the culture there didn't describe well what we were doing, why we were trying to do it, and being able to share it, you ended up with a multi-multi-million dollar, basically, mistake. Right. Which happens to a lot of organizations. It's, this is definitely not a, a unique scenario. Um, I did a project... Back to sunlight being the greatest disinfectant. Yes, I did. And to that point even though there was no light in this room from outside it was in the middle of the building but i had a a room two rooms actually that were set up for a project once they painted all the walls for me with whiteboard paint so you could write on anything in this room and what we did is we put the architecture on the wall there was a grid for the adrs there was posty notes all over the place for different decisions and pieces we were working on all the components the backlog everything anything you were doing on this project was in these two rooms on the wall so at any point in time the team that was outside the room needed to needed clarity they could walk into the room and they could see everything they needed to because it was all updated real time on the walls um I did another meeting. I did another project once where the the review for the executives for the project was again in a room on the walls, all visuals. They could walk in, go to the left, make a circle and see everything about the project all in the room, all in one shot and then leave. And they still found those physical tactile type of formats were more effective than any documentation that we had to write or try to share or make sure your wording was correct for everybody to understand. And like sometimes the visuals and the tactiles were, were better. Like they were faster. I, 
I agree. In the, and I think this is like, that's hard to do since we're all not in the same building anymore. But the, this is kind of where a good dev portal can kind of help. Yeah. You can, you can contextualize things to say, this is the thing that I'm talking about, whether it's, you know, a domain, whether it's a given set of systems, you can start to build those things out inside of a good dev portal, be able to, here's documentation, here's ADRs, here's all this information contextualized around it. It's like a virtual room, like you were just talking about. And now here's everything about it. You know, that to me is always the the big problem with things like Confluence and other just, just documentation platforms. Yes. Yes, I can say that, you know, here's the thing that I'm talking about in the title or in the, you know, kind of the, the hierarchy, but you lose so much context about everything else because you can't keep everything there. And that's to me is the really great, one of the really great benefits of a, of a good dev. And I would agree with that. Um, also the fact that I have more different types of content in it. So images, graphics, videos, and things like that too, because when you mentioned, you know, a text-based type of a portal, if I'm writing everything, I have to be a good writer and most people are not good writers. So it's even harder to understand the concepts they're trying to share if they're not practiced, if they're not skilled in it, if they haven't learned how to explain themselves well enough, you know, and they're people who do it for a living. So that's fine. But for some of us, let's say, you know, certain architects, designer, developers, anyone, right? The leader of the yeah. team, even they might not know how to write it in a way that it resonates well with everyone. I would, I would actually double down on this and say, most people don't truly understand the problem, which is why they're struggling to write it. Fair enough. And if you're struggling, like there, if you're, if you're explaining something verbally, I can make a lot of assumptions as to what you might be talking about. And we can, we can both leave, you know, we can both leave the room and I'm like, I totally understood what you were talking about. You were talking about putting apples on an apple cart and you leave the room going, aha, I just gave him the best recipe for making beef stew ever. And you both leave happy, but you're not even close to the same page. Yep. And, but when you're reading something from somebody, it's a lot harder to do that because there's so many gaps that you, it's harder to kind of assume and make, you know, um, just, just make assumptions on, on what, what they're actually talking about. Think about and how so many what? times you read a text message and you read it in your own voice and your own um, energy level you have for the day. Are you happy or you're angry or something else? So you can think somebody's angry in a text message because of the way you're reading it instead of what they meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, um, you know, I'll, I'll like, I'll call you out on, on this one a little bit. Like you in text, you use. Okay. A lot. Yeah. You send back. Okay. And okay. Could be read as like, all right, man. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Okay, fine. Whatever. whatever yeah. Fine. Yep. Or it could be like, okay, Roger, I get it. Yep. Thumbs up. Like everything's yep. good. Yep. And, and it's, it's interesting in a whole nother discussion that I do want to have at some point. Cause I do a lot of the 
people traits and personality types, but that's very much a personality type thing too. So if you don't understand the people you're talking with, I'm a personality type that a one line email or a single word is perfect. Like I don't want paragraphs, but if I'm talking to somebody who expects me to write out a paragraph to detail and explain my response, right? I can really frustrate somebody really quick with a very short email to your point. So I can say, okay. And I mean a lot of stuff in an okay, but you want a lot of stuff. You want me to answer back to everything you just took the time, the craft and write and everything else. So this is a real thing and we should talk about it on another episode, but understanding that um, can change the perceptions between people, which thus leads to what we're talking about here. Again, if, if we're on a team together and I do that all the time, you're going to get frustrated and it's going to destroy the unity we have in a team and I won't even know why. And it could be literally just the communication pathways between the people on the team that are ruining the ability for the team to be more effective. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of like a, a weird. The, old, like, the, old, the, the best like, analogy I can make here is like love languages. Yeah, same like, idea. I read that book. It, it's it's different, but it's it's like communication love languages like to your point you just made like i like to be super crisp my wife will look at me sometimes and just go shh (laughs) who many words basically like you're like i had a joke that i said with people all the time i get along with her better than than you from that communication standpoint so my statement i used to give to a couple of my friends was short version yeah i'd look at them and i'd go short version like yeah (laughs) i don't need to hear all that but you know, it's, it's, I can be very verbose, which works well for a podcast, I guess. Um, but, but you can lose, you can lose listeners because they don't, I don't mean on the podcast, but like if you were talking about something on a project and somebody just needed a concise, simple answer and you were trying to explain all of it, you could end up losing the trust somewhat. It always comes down to trust because they feel like you're trying to, it's an interesting thing. It's like the brain starts to think you're trying to hide something because you're giving so much content at a time where I don't need the content. So now, now I feel like you're nervous or worried or you're defending something or like one of the things I used to, I coach all the time is when you get feedback from somebody, don't respond with the, a reason, like don't defend your feedback, you can an hour later, you can go talk to them, but not during the feedback. Cause what will happen is somebody giving it will think that you are defending it negatively, even if it's a positive and a good reason. So like the timing is important and all of the communication things we do here matter. And for teams and teams to grow, it matters. All of these pieces, think about in a meeting, half the people in a meeting, just for a number, half the people in a meeting might not talk and the other half talk too much. Yeah. Right. I would probably say that's 75, 25. Yeah. So now if you are an experienced leader, you realize this and you will make space for the people who are not talking to talk because they're, they're thinking the rest of us don't know how to have an actual conversation and we just keep interrupting each other and we don't understand the rules of conversation and they're not wrong from their point of view. Uh, a team lead, a leader, anybody who's running the meeting, running the team needs to understand how to get their voice out. And there's different techniques and ways to do it, but you need to make sure everybody is able to, to speak. So you'll manage it correctly. 
if you don't know how to manage that, that 75% to your number is going to be mad at the 25% because they never let them speak. And the 25% is going to be mad because they think 75% of the team is an idiot, doesn't have anything to say and doesn't know what they're doing. Right. So again, that breaks the culture you're trying to create and it ruins the team. And it goes back to the forming part, in my opinion, where the team needs to sit and understand each other a bit and how to work together to get the um, communication and the clarity and the transparency of, you know, how they how they do things together. Like that could literally just say that everyone needs to follow the one breath rule and leave open space for the other people in the meetings to talk. Well, there's like, you know, there's a lot of people that can be very verbose and say almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And there's people that can say as few words as possible, but be very, very diligent about them. Like there's a very, very famous um, physicist that falls under this category. So Paul Dirac, um, who created the Dirac equation, if you've never heard of it. Um, I am not even going to, I'm not even going to go down the road of explaining the Dirac equation, but Paul Dirac was known for saying as few words as humanly possible. Like the man just didn't want to speak and (laughs) definite introvert described, (laughs) described as being like even his fellow, like physicists like Niels Bohr, described him as the strangest man but you know but when the when he spoke the the amount of gravity in every word was humongous but he just didn't speak just to speak there was no small talk there was no anything and they, they would you know there was an interesting thing where somebody would ask him a question and he would seemingly wait a long time. And the joke was that he was trying to figure not the answer. He knew the answer right away. He was trying to figure out how few words he could, he could speak to give you the answer right to the actual question. Not what the answer is just trying to just slim this thing down and uh, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. And, you know, it, it long winded way of saying just because you don't speak in a meeting does not mean you're not highly intelligent and that you have a ton of things that you can give to the, to the conversation and to the organization. And to your point about good leaders, identifying those people and not only identifying those people, but figuring out a way to, to bring them out because I know like I've known quite a few people like this and they, you know, some of them, one of them in particular, in my mind that I'm not going to call out, but did not want to be, they didn't want to speak in a meeting. Right. They didn't want to be called out. They didn't like, they didn't, you know, Hey, tell me about what you think about this particular thing. They did not want that. No. What they would rather do is give you all the information and then you can give it to the rest of the team. And they know that they're being a big part of it. Right. And you know, and if I'm a good leader, I'll, you know, Hey, I was talking to this person the other day, we were talking about this topic. I think they had a lot of great ideas. Here's what I think those, some ideas could be, and you know, kind of that model. And it's, you know, 
But that's where the, uh, the leadership understanding your team. Yeah. That's where the leadership part does come in is because some people don't want to be what they would say, um, center of attention, right? They don't want to be the center of attention. So you don't want them to have to be other people just want you to stop talking for five minutes so they can join in on the conversation. Right. And understanding that's important and there's easy techniques to do it. Like in the meetings, like I was saying before, and you brought up here is most of the time I'll stop and I'll just ask them, like, I will stop everybody from talking to allow me to pull somebody in for a minute. So, oh, you know, so-and-so I, I, I noticed you, you look like you had something you wanted to add in. What were you thinking? You know, what, what did you have? What were you thinking? You know, did you have a point of view and just give them a second to be able to come in and have the floor because they're afraid to interrupt because to them it's impolite. It's rude. You don't interrupt people. For half of the world, we're okay interrupting. For the other half, they're not. And like, it's polite to understand this. Like, these are these are the niceties of communication that we seem to have forgotten, right? You know, um, there's other ways, like you said, though, I can pre-wire a meeting. So if I know, again, some of the world can go off the cuff like we do. Other people would rather have some time to think through it. To make sure that they have the right response to the question before you ask them again the question, especially if they have to say it in front of people. So if you pre-wire your meeting by giving your team the ability to think through the problem before the actual meeting, you will get better responses in the meeting. If you keep inviting all of them to a meeting and then surprising them with the question, they're going to be frustrated and they're not going to give you responses and answers. If anything, you've seen this pattern by after the meeting you'll get a bunch of emails with more content that supports what you were trying to do in the meeting. And then the funny thing is you'll hear people talk about how useless the meetings are. That's right. Yeah. We, every week we have this hour long useless meeting, you know? Yep. And most of the time, because you didn't know your audience and you didn't pre-wire the meeting correctly, which also most of that could have been done probably through chat or email and you didn't even need the meeting. But I, um, and just to, to bring this in another little angle, as I know we're, we're, we're getting long toothed here, but uh, I think it's important to what you're saying is how do you identify like where that team might be? So you catch these things because that's also a trigger. Like there's patterns to watch for. One of them is that when everyone starts complaining that there's just too many meetings and too many processes and I can't get any work done. And like, that's a trigger to, to pay attention and see what's happening. The other one I notice often before I switch it back to you is uh, people don't pay attention. So if I notice that people start getting quiet in meetings, people aren't responding much. They're, they're just not attentive anymore. They've lost interest. That's a good sign that they've either lost the vision of why we're doing this or everybody's fighting with each other or there's just a lack of clarity or there, there's something going wrong. That those are prime examples of there's a leadership problem. It's, it's manifesting itself in those areas, but it's an absolute leadership problem of, you know, they don't understand why they're there or they understand why they're there, but you're not really wanting their input. Um, you know, another, another problem that I see leaders do all the time, it's like a herd mentality where I'm going to bring everybody along to this thing, even though I might only need one of them. Right. Cause I don't want to, I don't want anybody to feel left out or like stuff like that, which I appreciate. You don't want to have people left out, but you're also 
dragging along people that don't necessarily need to be there. You're also ruining it by um, additional context switching. So how many meetings do you go? And I know I do. How many meetings do you go to at the end? You're like, I didn't need to be here. And you didn't know enough about the meeting to even be able to decline it so that you didn't have to go or delegate it and send somebody else. So the context switching, right? I'll double down on that real quick and say, how many times have you flown somewhere (laughs) for a meeting or a workshop where you had no real purpose to be there. <laughs> yes. Uh, like, yeah, you know, I spend my day flying to LA for a meeting to then get up super early to then fly back like two full days of travel for a three hour meeting that I said three words. And it was, hi, my name's Chris and here's my title. And nice to meet all of you. Yep. And then I didn't say a damn word for the rest of it. And not that you didn't I'm want to about it, but, right? Uh, not that uh, you didn't want to or couldn't. It's just it, yeah. there was no need, right? There's no need. <laughs> yeah, that happens, and it's none of this is easy, right? Um, like it's it, you know, I to I guess to kind of wrap this up a little bit because we could talk about this for six hours. But to your point, none of this is easy, and it. But to me, it it really is. Most of this all shifts down from leadership. Okay, and I, I don't fully agree with you on that. So finish that, and I'm going to add on. And when I say leadership, it's you know a a team. So like an engineering team is reliant upon their leader mm-hmm. to make them to to shield them away from the things that need to be shielded away from to make them as efficient as possible to make sure that the roadmap looks good. They don't have any, and everybody talks about blockers all the time, but you know, they don't like they can move the things that are in their way. That person's job is to, to make them, you know, and to set this culture to make sure that everything can work relatively close. You know, you need both a top down culture and you need a bottom up, team, you know, kind of team structure that allows for teams to be able to work together, build and drive toward the common goal. You can, if you don't have a good, you know, kind of top down culture, it is going to be harder for a team to be super successful. Can it be? Yes. But it's going to have to fight through more problems and you're going to like we said earlier, yep, we made it to like the norming phase, but nope, we got to go all the way back to storming because like we said, they keep stealing my tech lead for half the damn time. Right. And so I guess that's, you know, that's the way that I would look at it. You have to have both. And if you don't, you'll end up losing a lot of people. Okay. And, and I don't, from one point of view, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, it's leadership is very important at the top and the uh, flexibility to allow teams to do stuff and also the blocking and tackling that's needed to keep the politics and some of the other crazy stuff that happens inside of larger organizations. Format you would use for startups and smaller organizations is very different than corporate organizations. So there's a one team that's successful and one might not be in the other and vice versa, but there's formats that have to be there. Anarchy is the lack of a structure, right? Autonomy is a structure. So it's, we're talking about autonomy, not anarchy here. So you do need structure where I'm not disagreeing, but looking at this differently is my experience is very specific inside of a team and a team format itself. 
And I think if I was to give anybody a takeaway, it would go read about Tuckman's Law of Teams because it is an excellent framework and blueprint for helping teams to become high-performing teams. And I also believe teams can manage themselves in this pattern, no matter the ecosystem they're working in. Will there be more headaches because management's kind of breaking your day-to-day work? Yes. But when you start showing your output, right, actions and outputs matter and you can get moral autonomy because you've built more trust with the leadership. So then leadership will leave you alone because you're a high performing team. So there's a, there's a dichotomy that works there and and changes. Now, like you said, forming and storming are most important and they keep happening all the time. Whether you get a new person on the team, somebody leaves a team, the project changes, whatever, but finding out how you work together and then sticking to that and holding each other accountable is important. But I've seen it happen time and time again that teams by themselves can become highly effective, independent of the organization that they're working in. I absolutely agree. They absolutely can become highly effective. It just, I guess the point I was trying to make is there's more, there's more resistance. Yes. And so it's going to be harder for them to do and it's going to be harder for them to maintain not impossible, but harder. And I don't disagree with the harder part of it. Um, but I think that's another conversation on the leadership side. So we can beat on the top down side of this. So from a bottom up, I think my recommendation is 100%. go read about Tuckman's. Forget about pizza teams and all this stuff, though. Useful mm-hmm. conversations. Forget about that for now. And look at just the format of how teams grow and communicate and work together, because I think there's a huge benefit in understanding that life cycle, just like we understand life cycles of everything else. There's a life cycle for everything and understanding that can provide a lot of clarity for a team. And then in that my success for myself has been really in the beginning of a team, having everybody do a 30 minute session to talk about how they want to work or expect to work with each other. You know, like less meetings, meetings end 10 minutes early. We're going to take documentation if that's what that is. Or, you know, um, this is how we're going to do standups. This is how we're going to communicate. We want chat over email. Like all those little things that people take for granted should be just discussed really quick. And that gets rid of so much friction and, and so many headaches in a team to allow for some clarity to move forward. And if a team is frustrated right now, go back and do that again. So if you have a team that just seems to fight with each other, you know, just go back and start over that way and get some clarity and and observation and transparency again and see how it helps. I think that would be, that's definitely a nugget for another, another podcast, like team ways of working. I think team size is another interesting thing. Yeah. Um, and the topology yeah. format for an organization, I think was another one. Yeah. Different, different methodologies you might use when it comes to like agile methodologies or even kind of engineering process. Yep. Um, it, yeah, this is, this is a huge, huge, huge topic. I think this was a really great start. And, um, I, I, I know I'll love to dig down deeper into this because, you know, I love finding a topic that, we, we don't perfectly agree on. <laughs> it makes this even more fun. Yeah, it is. It's more fun. I'm like, Cause you're like, well, do I actually believe this or don't I believe this? I know I said, I believed it, but do I really? And having to go back and, and rethink about it. And, you know, like that's one thing I always try to do is yes, I may believe something, but 
always allow more, more information and be willing to say I was wrong and move on. A hundred percent. I love the fact of, uh, thinking I finally figured it out and then finding new information that makes me have to go figure it out again. Like, okay. You know, then it's fun. And then we're luckily in a field that we're always learning. So one of the things I love about it. Yep. Well, this was fun, man. Yes, definitely. Thank you again. And, uh, enjoy till next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.